On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Yen Trey about the front lines of serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 33. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Yen Trey. Hi, Yen. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So you are a developer advocate at Lumigo. Uh, you're an AWS serverless hero. You're also an independent consultant, and I think more people know you as the burning monk. But why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately? So uh, yeah, so uh, I'm doing all the things you just mentioned. <laughs> I'm doing some work with Lumigo as a developer advocate, uh, where I'm focusing a lot on the open source tooling and articles. Uh, and in my sort of capacity as an independent consultant, I also work with a lot of clients uh, directly. A lot of them are based in London, where I used to be based. Uh, nowadays, I moved to Amsterdam. Uh, and um, yeah, I still do a lot of open source work. I just uh, started a new video course uh, focusing on Lambda best practices. And then I'm also doing some uh, workshops around the world uh, in Europe and also now looking at the US as well. So, you know, doing lots of different things to keep myself busy. Awesome. Well, so listen, I, I could talk to you probably about anything. I mean, anybody who knows, um, you know, or has seen some of the work that you've done, um, it's quite expansive. It's very impressive. And in 2019, I have some numbers here. Um, you know, you did 70 blog posts, um, something like, uh, you know, 2,200 students to your video courses. You spoke at 31 conferences in 17 cities. Um, but more importantly, you helped 23 clients in 11 different cities. So you're You've, you're sort of on the front line here and seeing how companies are uh, adopting serverless and not from one perspective. And I think that's what we get a lot from different companies is there's one perspective of how they adopt serverless and how they're they're working with that. Um, you've, you've obviously seen this from multiple perspectives. Um, so just, I want to talk about adoption a little bit. We'll talk about a few other things, but just what are you seeing with companies uh, now, the customers you're working with or the clients you're working with, what are they using serverless for? Uh, they're using it for all kinds of different things, and I think uh, depending on, I guess, the maturity of the company, the sort of the, the domain they're working in. Uh, I've got a lot of clients uh, that are either enterprises or a lot of uh, mis- or mis- I guess your mis- small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, and, and even some stealth mode startups as well. And obviously, your constraints are completely different, and that's one of the things I really enjoy about being a consultant, where I get to see a lot of different perspectives. And uh, you know, what, what may work for one company may be completely inappropriate because the constraints a different company will have. So in terms of the adoption patterns, you see a lot of, uh, I guess, startups uh, that are in that, in that position where they can go all in on serverless. Mm-hmm. You know, they are your, you know, your, your, your great uh, serverless first uh, going into the game. But then at the same time, you also have lots of, uh, I guess, uh, mid-sized companies and enterprises that have so much existing intellectual properties that it wouldn't make sense for them to rewrite everything just so that they can run code on Lambda. And um, so for a lot of those companies, you see a mix of uh, Greenfield projects that are serverless first. And then at the same time, there's some effort to migrate some of the existing projects to to work on serverless, at least to some degree, at least gradually, uh, of course, depending on a lot of constraints around uh, how much of you know, on-premises stuff you have. Uh, do you have to run everything on, in Java, in which case uh, there's the cold start performance, that's a, that's a concern. So a lot of those limitations, uh, so I guess uh, 
affects how quickly and how much you're able to go in on this whole serverless first sort of a mindset that we like to have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is one of the probably one of the reasons that serverless adoption hasn't been as fast and uh, uh, as many people ex expected a few years ago because uh, the fact that you, you can't just take you can't just lift and shift your way anymore sure. means that there is have to a lot more thought process behind it and planning and also just risk involved uh, if you, you know make a big mistake mm -hmm. and this is your your, your flagship uh, product then the, of course that's going to put you in a really difficult position and but we do see that companies of all sizes and all fields of you know, for, uh, all industries are adopting serverless for lots of different workloads not just apis but lots of data processing iot you mm -hmm. name it yeah and, and that's actually one of the things i'm curious of too i mean you mentioned um you know uh customers in all different industries, which is really interesting because sort of we, we get to this point now where I think every company is a software company, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. building some sort of software um, um, now. But so what are what are the constraints that these companies are are working in? A lot of them, uh, I guess, again, depends on the industry you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, for finance companies, you have to be very careful about a lot of the, I guess, regulatory requirements uh, in terms of some of how you handle data and also in some cases, uh, your ability, you, know, you having a plan uh, in case you have to move away from AWS, for example, that's where some of your sort of vendor locking arguments start to kick in. And also, for example, you have enterprises that have millions of lines of uh, Java code that has been accumulated over 10 years. It's not possible for them to move everything into Lambda if they're seeing you know, one to three seconds of cold start time on those user-facing APIs. So some of those constraints are being lifted, or at least the uh, now getting better with new features on the platform, but still is something that people have to be aware of and also have understand the mitigation strategies, which a lot of times is where the constraint is, is the lack of knowledge and know-how because you can even think of Lambda as an extension to a lot of AWS offers, then it means that you can't just know EC2 visualization, you have to know a lot of different services to take full advantage of serverless. and. That's where I think a lot of companies are struggling is that they just don't have the skill sets available in-house. Uh, they're exposing developers to things that they've never had to think about before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you get a lot of benefit from serverless, from having autonomous teams that can be self-sufficient and look after so many different things. But at the same time, a lot of developers are just not used to working that way. They're used to working in silos where they have very few responsibility, just write your code, someone else will manage the you know, running the code in production, they run the managed infrastructure, but now more of that is your responsibility, which can be a gift, but it can, it can be a challenge to companies that are not used to working that way as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, learning all these other services, I, I think we're at a point now where most of these use cases, there is some sort of serverless uh, equivalent or serverless alternative um, to doing it a more traditional way. Obviously, we're still missing certain things like, um, you know, I'd love to have some sort of serverless Elasticsearch, for yep. example, <laughs> um, which would be which would be really nice. Um, but I mean, people are still, you know, are there are there certain applications that you see people are trying with serverless or are thinking about serverless and just say, no, I can't do it because um, the throughput needs to be higher or it is too much latency or, or something like that. Yes, uh, there are. There's, there's, you see, you see cases where, in say, for example, one of my clients had a, a really complex microservices environment, whereby they have so many API to API calls, and uh, the fact that uh, you get call starts on one function that may not be an issue, it might not affect your 95th percentile or whatever SLA is mm -hmm. set, but when they start to stack up, that becomes a massive issue. And so, 
having more control around uh, so sort of, I guess the you know, the, the warm-up process sure. with provision concurrency should help with those things. But at the same time, that is a slow process of having to get the, the teams educated on you know, what these different features are, how to how to work. And in fact, a lot of questions I get are fairly you know, simple questions around how do I even do CICD? How do I do testing? Yeah. It's, not, it's not clear to a lot of newcomers how do you do these things uh, when you know, a lot of what we've been taught has been tethered to, okay, there's going to be a server. I can just run everything locally and uh, press F5 and I can just run a local HTTP server. And now everything is running in the cloud. And a lot of that mindset change needs to happen. And that those kind of change, uh, those kind of paradigm shift happens gradually because, well, everyone learns at a different pace and sure. you need to have some critical mass in the industry. Yeah, and I like um, I like the idea of provision concurrency actually because I do think it it uh, it does solve a problem that that for the right types of applications, especially when there's those you know, low latency requirements, um, you know that, that it helps. And I think that AWS has been pretty good about sort of addressing those problems. Mm-hmm. They've come out now with the RDS proxy, which is you know helping with the yep. uh, you know with connections to the uh, to to relational databases. But I always feel like when that happens, they have to add another service in order for you to make it work, right? So it's not just, you know, okay, Lambda Functions, hey, we've solved the connection issue with Lambda Functions. It's we've solved the connection issue with Lambda Functions because we've added a new service that now you have to use. And I think those present a number of roadblocks and you had mentioned, you know, education as being one of those. So what what are some of those other sort of roadblocks that you see, you know, companies running into? the road, well, the biggest one I think is, is by far is just education. Like I said, the Lambda itself is getting more and more complicated because of all the different things you can do with it. Uh, other roadblocks uh, include, uh, for example, some organizations are still holding on to the way they are used to operating with centralized operation teams, uh, cloud teams. So teams, the feature teams don't necessarily have the, uh, the, the autonomy they need to take full advantage of all these different tools that you get uh, and all this power and agility you get with serverless, your you know your team can build a new feature in a week, but it's going to take them three weeks to get anything they need done, provisioned, and uh, to get access to resources they need. Then again, you're not going to get the full benefit of serverless. So a lot of that legacy thinking or the at the organization level is still there and still a, is still a prominent problem and roadblock for people to take full advantage of serverless. But in terms of actual adoptions. Uh, a lot of it is in terms of technical uh, uh, roadblocks. There's some, I think the last question you had was around some use cases that just doesn't fit so well. Um, when you've got a really high throughput system, the cost of serverless can become pretty high. Right. Uh, so imagine if you've got uh, something that's relatively simple, but have to scale massively like your Dropbox, uh, you know, not a, t- not a super complex system, but have to scale to massive extent. So for them, it makes perfect sense to move off of S3 and start to build their own even hardware so that they can start to optimize for that cost. And for a lot of companies, they do have that concern as well. They may not have a very complicated system that requires you know, 100 different functions on this massive uh, you know, event-driven architecture. Yeah. Maybe they just have five endpoints. But those five endpoints are running at you know, 10, 50,000 requests per second. Yeah. So in those cases, the cost for uh, for using Lambda and API Gateway would be excruciating. Yes. And uh, you'd be much better off paying a team to look after your Kubernetes cluster or your containers cluster uh, than running them on Lambda. But that's always a tricky balance. Uh, how much, do, because uh, 
oftentimes you can also get a reverse argument whereby while lambda is expensive, but so I'm gonna just you know do do, do my study myself. But then you're hiring someone for you know, ten grand uh, a month exactly to look after the infrastructure, uh, and your lambda bill is, is gonna be I don't know hundred dollars hundred dollars. And you're you're hiring more than one person too. I mean that's yeah. and then you're still paying for the bandwidth and some of these other things, and you're yep. still paying for compute somewhere. Um, so that's really interesting. You made a point a little bit earlier where you said you know this idea of the sort of the paradigm shift or the mind shift of um, uh, of going from this traditional lift and shift and bringing things into serverless. And so obviously there is a ton that needs to change, right? And and it would like to say, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's programming and you just need to figure out some of these glue, you know, the glue that works there, but um, you really can't just lift and shift and get those benefits, right? Yep. It's, uh, it's, it's a common pitfall whereby now, teams try to lift and shift, and uh, initially it looks like it might work, and then later on, pretty soon, they found out the hard way that uh, that approach doesn't scale, it doesn't work uh, nicely, and you run into all kinds of different li uh, you know, limitations. As, uh, for example, one example from a client I've worked with uh, for, uh, that kind of illustrates that point was they had this API, uh, which used to do a lot of different things, including doing some server-side rendering and some REST API endpoint, uh, some handling some requests. And then they just moved the whole thing as one big fat Lambda function. Mm -hmm. And uh, because uh, one of the endpoints have to ask uh, some VPC resource, so of course, also have to, have to be inside VPC. <laughs> yeah. uh, and now you've got uh, every function have to, have to no, when, it, when code starts, have to initialize React, mm -hmm. which is not, no, very lightweight uh, dependency. Sure. Uh, even when you've got an HTTP endpoint that doesn't need it, you have to you have to you have to uh, initialize it, and then also you have to wait for the VPC you know, initialization and all of that. And they were getting performance that was so bad that you know just not acceptable for anything that's going to run in production. And of course, unless you know that okay, the reason why that's happening is because uh, we had, you know we got this fat lambda and how the whole initialization process works then you know to split your function up into you know, one function per endpoint, perhaps, or maybe at least some separation so that the resource-intensive the resource -intensive functions are separate from the other things. And, and you've got tools that, I like the fact that you've got tools uh, that allow you to take your Express app and just run inside Lambda. It represents a easy path for people to get some of the benefits in terms of the infrastructure automation mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the top uh, improve the scalability and resilience you get with Lambda, but at the same time, unless there's a way for you to then later on you know, do, the, do the idiomatic way uh, of, you know, of working with Lambda, having single responsibility functions, then it becomes a bit locked into the decision that the tool has made for you, yeah. and it becomes harder for you to then to you know, migrate later. Yeah, and I, and I actually think that's one of the better arguments for um, moving away from fat lambdas or the lambda lift, I think a lot of people have a ton of success with that, and I and I I have used them in the past as well. There's mm -hmm. been times where it just seems to make sense, but certainly the bootstrap process. If you're bootstrapping something um, as part of the you know the, the warm up phase of a lambda function that isn't used by 90% of the code, right? It's only yeah. used when um, you know that just it's a complete waste of of, of time and memory to, to boot those things up. So um, I totally agree with that, and and I and I think you and I were talking in the past too where you know, we just said this this adoption pattern here. This is just something that is going to take time. I mean, I know you're a big fan of functional programming. I, I'm a uh, I'm actually a big fan of JavaScript functional programming, which I think people think is impossible, but it is. Um, but anyways, it, it's it's something that you know, it's just it's probably just going to take a little bit more time for people to understand. Um, you know, working in this different way. 
Yeah, and uh, if you look here, where you know where we are with functional programming uh, is as old as uh, OO, but yeah. it's you know <laughs> when functional programming gonna hit the mainstream, that is still to be decided. Uh, um, which is no, to some extent is frustrating because uh, for you know for many use cases, uh, functional programming is a probably better tool. Uh, I've, I've no, a big fan of uh, F sharp and done a lot of things in the past with sure. uh, Erlang and uh, uh, stuff as well. I'm a big fan, but it is a big mind shift. It's big change the way you you problem solve, and uh, it's not and those kind of uh, sort of mind change doesn't happen overnight, mm -hmm. and you have to be you have to be patient, and you have to give people time to digest and internalize this change and understand the real, you know, really understand the benefits before they before they become uh, advocates themselves, yeah. or at least they become practitioners. Yeah. And, uh, and I do think it's happening slowly. And you know, just, just judging by the amount of interest the community is showing, you know, the number of serverless days conferences sure. that are around the world, uh, um, that interest is definitely there. But we're still a long way from having enough people with, who, who are well-equipped to succeed. Uh, there are definitely a lot of people, you know, your Michael Hart, your uh, Ben uh, Cahill, but we need a lot more of them. I agree. I agree. So one other thing on functional programming, I tell people, listen, once you write a pure function, you'll never go back to <laughs> writing something <laughs> else. Um, anyway, so one more question on the adoption side of things, because one of the things I see quite a bit, and I, I really love this use case for serverless, is sort of this like peripheral um, you know, uh, enhancing the DevOps sort of stuff, right? Yes. Like, do you see a lot of that where, where companies are using it to either do auditing or, you know, uh, doing sort of DevOps, uh, DevOps automation, things like that? Yeah, tons. Um, there's actually been quite a few companies who the main feature teams are not uh, using serverless, but the, 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 the infrastructure and the DevOps teams are using Lambda very, very heavily, uh, whereby before there's just a lot of things they couldn't do. Uh, because there's no way to tap into what's happening in your AWS ecosystem. But now with Lambda, everything that's happening in your account gets captured by CloudTrail. You can use an event pattern in EventBridge or CloudWatch events to trigger your functions to do all kinds of automated detection for you know, changes that you don't expect to happen, uh, do security checks and things like that, or even just basic things like automating, uh, deleting uh, some processes and resources uh, that, no longer, that are no longer necessary. So there's tons of things that a lot of the DevOps teams are doing now that they would have been really difficult to do in the past without Lambda. And I do see a lot of adoption in that particular space as well. Awesome. All right, so I want to move on to, um, you know, move a little bit past use cases, but I think maybe this ties into it. Um, so there are people who say, well, I can't use Lambda because it only runs for 15 minutes and I have ETL tasks that need to run longer jobs or I need to do something like that or I have to have multiple jobs running together or something. And um, and this new thing that seems to maybe have been sparked by Google Cloud Run mm -hmm. um, is this idea of serverless containers. And I I, I spoke with uh, with um, with Brett McGowan about this and, and just sort of the thinking behind that. And so obviously we have Fargate with, um, uh, with, with AWS. So what are your thoughts on this idea of experience Expanding the term of serverless to include things like Fargate and Cloud Run. Yeah, um, I think, well, at least when I think about serverless, I don't think about specific technologies. I think in terms of the characteristics that a technology has, uh, in terms of the, sort of the, the pay-per-use uh, pricing model, uh, in terms of not having to worry about the underlying infrastructure and how it's going to scale and all of that. And I think right now, you know, Fargate is kind of serverless. Uh, 
uh, in that you don't have to worry about underlying infrastructure, the, um, the, the EC2 instances that um, your containers run on, or the, the cluster, how to auto-scale them. Um, but I guess what is missing right now is just the event programming model and the fact that you can't, uh, it's not paper, no, a paper, paper use. Yeah. Paper use, yeah. yeah. So, but that said, I think uh, you do get a lot of benefits uh, that we enjoy from serverless uh, technologies with Fargate already, and it does eliminate a lot of the limitations mm -hmm. that Lambda has. And if I need to run some, and, and also I just don't think that you know, Lambda is going to be, we, sh we shouldn't see Lambda as the silver bullet. Uh, well, nothing ever is sure. going to be a silver bullet. So the fact that you've got something else that can allow you to run containerized workloads very easily and minimize the amount of uh, work that you have to do. Because remember the whole thing about serverless is about you know, removing undifferentiated heavy lifting. And a lot of that uh, is around managing EC2 instances, uh, um, you know, configuring auto-scaling groups mm -hmm. and clusters and all of that. And the fact that you can get a lot of that away from my plate onto AWS with Fargate, and I think that is a really good uh, direction. And I, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not a purist uh, in yeah. terms of the, the terms. Uh, all I care about is uh, what can I get from the technology and from, you know, from from that particular standpoint. Uh, Fargate is quite close to what we get uh, with other similar services. Uh, just would be nice if you can uh, trigger Fargate uh, with event triggers, right? Yeah, directly. Well, and, that, and that's a, that's the big thing too. And I think that, um, and I think Tim Wagner has said this as well. Where it's sort of like Lambda and Fargate are kind of becoming closer and closer. I mean, yep. for, any, for all intents and purposes, there's no reason why Lambda can only run for 15 minutes other than it's a limit that AWS sets. So, yep. I mean, they could run for an hour or 10 days if it needed to, if they wanted to allow you to do that. Um, they could add some sort of event triggering or some sort of event-driven approach um, to Fargate. I mean, you can start Fargate tasks now in a number of different ways. Yep. Um, so there are some, you know, there's a little bit of event-driven, just not as clear as the yes. Lambda stuff. Um, so, I mean, as... Lambda gets more of these serverful type, um, you know, features, and, and as Fargate gets more of these serverless features, um, you know, is, is there maybe a point that they just sort of become the same thing? Probably, uh, hopefully. <laughs> I think at that point uh, it'd be really confusing for people. Right. Uh, but I think that that is ultimately where I hope we will get to, uh, whereby a lot of the limitations that we currently have with Lambda is eliminated. And uh, a lot of benefits that we enjoy from Lambda, but not available for Fargate, becomes available for Fargate. Mm -hmm. So it becomes more of a, a choice uh, in terms of, uh, okay, uh, what do I prefer working with? Um, do, I have, do I have a specific use cases that is more, well, that fits better with a containerized uh, environment where I have more control of the, you know, the infrastructure itself? Then I use Fargate versus uh, using Lambda. But in both cases, I can enjoy pretty much the same benefits. I think that would be a really good place to be. Awesome. All right. So one of the things that I've been talking about sort of a lot at the end of last year, and it's something that I've been thinking about for a while, um, is this thing that I call abstraction as a service. And it's probably an annoying term, but what I'm thinking of is Lambda functions themselves are pretty easy. You create a Hello World one, fine, simple. You want to add an API gateway, use the serverless framework or use SAM. Um, it makes it very easy for you to get these simple, you know, uh, uh, these simple examples up and running. But start adding in SQS queues or mm -hmm. event bridge and Kinesis streams and then understanding, you know, the sharding of Kinesis streams and how many concurrent lambdas you might need to have and and then the, the new um, uh, ability for you to, uh, you know, to replicate the stream. There's, a, there's just a whole bunch of things that are happening there. And now suddenly your simple 
serverless, you know, upload a piece of code, that is now completely dwarfed by the amount of configuration files you have to write yep. um, and the understanding of all these different best practices. So my sort of premise here or the, the what I'm hoping to see, and I think this is something that serverless components are starting to do, um, and to a degree, the serverless application repository is starting to do, um, is encapsulate these sort of use cases or these outcomes um, and put them into something that's much more easy, much more easily deployed, where you don't have to think about the 50 different components you might need to configure under the hood. You just say, I want to build an API or a webhook that does this and that and whatever. Um, and it's much easier to configure that with same default. So um, so we can talk about the, the, the serverless components thing, but really what I want to do is focus on the, the serverless application repository, because you've done a bunch of apps. I think you've got 10 of them um, in there now. Um, what are your thoughts on SAR? I think SAR is a good idea, uh, but the execution is uh, still problematic right now, at least uh, from my experience working with SAR, both as a consumer as well as a publisher. Um, so one of the things uh, that often stands out is that uh, with SAR, um, the integration path is not super clear. Uh, for example, as a consumer, uh, to use SAR in my CloudFormation uh, template is not just normal CloudFormation resource. Uh, this whole service application uh, is not a native CloudFormation resource type. It is, so you have to bring in the SAM macro, mm -hmm. even if you're not using SAM. So a few times I have to, you know, I, when I had to do that with uh, the server framework, it works just fine. I can bring in the same macro, but yeah. it becomes a bit weird. <laughs> uh, and um, and also, um, you know, AWS often talk about this idea of we should be doing uh, least privilege mm -hmm. uh, as a default, but then they don't. Well, but then the, the but then they want you to also just use a, a package the profiles policies yes. for your SAR applications. And which means that your application either have not enough <laughs> permissions or have too much permissions. It's really hard to right size and tailor your permissions to follow least privilege. But uh, when you do the right thing, uh, the sort of discovery the discoveries on in the console kind of punishes you because someone has to take a box to mm. find applications that are using custom IEMs, uh, which is you know, they're trying to do the right thing to give you least privilege. Yeah. And also, I find a lot of the discoverability is, itself is also not that intuitive uh, to use when you try to search something is give you way more things than the, than, uh, than, the, than you're, you're actually looking for uh, and if you look at some of the, the top uh, applications in SAR right now they're all your sort of hello world or you know introduction uh, in the basic Alexa skills example mm -hmm. there's a lot of you know, example code something you can deploy to your account to have a look at how someone else is doing Alexa skills as opposed to something that is actually truly useful. So what that tells me is that the AWS customer just don't really know what they can do with SAR. So, but what is there? I mean, is there? You think it's a lack of incentive for people to publish those apps? Part of that is that, and uh, Forrest wrote a, a blog post a while back where he argued that SAR being a marketplace of sorts should be incentivized companies and publishers in terms of you know, putting out something that's not just a toy or an example code base, but something that as a company, as an enterprise, I can actually have confidence deploying this thing into my real production environment and, and know that it's, you know, it's, look, it's been looked after when there's, there's gonna be, then when there's issues, you know, someone would actually be there to you know, fix it and, and tell me patch it rather than you know, leaving me in, in a ditch. Because all I need is one right. experience like that to never want to touch anything in the, in the SAR ever again. So having some kind of uh, scheme where publishers can be financially rewarded 
by the resources that you know you, I will provision into my account. Mm -hmm. So AWS build me for those resources. So some of that uh, earning can then be passed on to the publisher for the SAR application. Uh, so that way you hopefully will encourage more commercial companies to start to publish things that are commercially looked after, yeah. you know, uh, adhere to, would adhere to SLAs and uh, the kind of guarantees that large enterprise, your large enterprise customers will be willing and comfortable to actually deploy into the environment the same way that when you look at the AWS marketplace, mm -hmm. where when I'm buying some software that deploys onto EC2 instance, at least I have confidence that this is a commercial thing. It's not just someone's, you know, Toy project that they may not look after if the uh, when they you know when, when they find something more interesting to uh, to work on. So the, I guess there's a bit of an image problem there for SAR in terms of what does it represent uh, yeah. to to to, uh, to the consumers. And if we want people to have faith in that, then we really need to do something about that. Uh, and and I think commercialization is uh, is is one step towards that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder about that, too, because I, I, I read uh, Forrest Brazil's post as well. And, and I and I thought that made a lot of sense. I mean, you, you have other open market places or other open ecosystems. I mean, just think about NPM, for example. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are um, people use NPM packages all the time with probably no consideration as to how well yep. some of them are maintained. Um, you know, so you already have people using those and, and running into certain problems like that. I mean, I think maybe because it's so specific to AWS and maybe it's just not as, maybe it just doesn't seem as open source as something like NPM does in a sense. But uh, but I totally agree. I, I just don't know, do people pay for, um, do people pay for some of these apps um, or do they, or are they paying more for the support of them? Yeah, I think that's the interesting point about NPM. But what I would say is that the impact that a badly written SAR app can have on your organization is probably far greater than uh, an NPM package mm -hmm. uh, because now you're talking about resources that are provisioned into AWS environment where they can, if a malicious actor, for example, might be able to gain access to way more things mm -hmm. than say uh, someone who's uh, published uh, uh, a malicious, malicious uh, NPM package. Sure. Of course, you can do a lot of with, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with, a dependent, with uh, those dependencies too. Um, but and also a badly written star application can also just cost you a lot of money. Mm. Imagine if someone deployed, uh, uh, I don't know, um, something to VPC with Net Gateway and start charging you, uh, I don't know, four, was it four, four, four cents per gigabyte yeah, of data a, transfer? That's right. And then those we'll get expensive those, quickly. Those yes. get really expensive really quickly. So I think in terms of that, the, the impact can be much greater. So. I mean, I would be, I would think twice about you know, deploying something to uh, via SAR, whereas uh, with NPM is mm -hmm. often just okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe it was one of those things too, because I think you're right. I mean, you are you're you're deploying something that is actually going to cost you money yeah. directly, right? I mean, so you have some other costs of you know auditing and some of those things you might do with NPM packages, but certainly with this, you're deploying things into an account that could rack up serious bills. Yes. Um, and that might be one of those other things where SAR needs to go down this road of uh, of helping people understand exactly what types of resources they're provisioning and maybe mm -hmm. cost estimates and you know, things like that that could potentially help ease someone's mind. But I do agree, there needs to be there needs to be more people flooding that marketplace with with good tools that they can use, yeah. um, and uh, and and without uh, without having some sort of backing, I think that's kind of uh, tough to achieve. Um, yes. So, uh, speaking of other tools um, and other sort of things that are available, 
um, the, the sort of the ecosystem that we have now for serverless frameworks, um, and not serverless framework, but frameworks for serverless, I should say. Um, serverless framework being one of those, obviously, Sam, Architect, um, Claudia JS. I mean, there's a lot of them now. I mean, there's ones for PHP, there's ones for uh, Ruby on Rails, there's all kinds of these, um, of these frameworks popping up. Um, and pretty much every single one of them is doing the exact same thing. It's taking some level of extraction, level of, of abstraction, and compiling it down to cloud formation or making a bunch of API calls to, um, uh, to AWS. So just, you know, what are your thoughts? I know you're a big proponent of the serverless framework. You've done a ton of um, serverless uh, framework uh, plugins. Uh, and I know that uh, you've done a lot of work with Sam as well. So just what are your, what are your thoughts on the overall, you know, ecosystem? What, what should people be using? Uh, personally, I prefer serverless framework, uh, and uh, happy to go into happy to go into details on uh, what I think serverless framework does well compared to a lot of the other frameworks. Um, I think the the serverless framework, the biggest strength it has is the the fact that it's got a great ecosystem of plugins that of support from the community. Pretty much anything that you run into, there's probably a plugin that can you know solve that problem for mm-hmm. you, or at least make your life a lot easier. And even when that's not the case, it's really easy for you to write a plugin yourself. Uh, I guess I'll complain about their documentation <laughs> on how to write a plugin. Uh, the, the, the only ones they, I think the only two articles they have there is still from Anna from, uh, uh, I think three years ago. Okay. <laughs> um, and, but once you kind of learn the, the, uh, how, what it takes, you know, what, what a server framework plugin looks like uh, is fairly straightforward because you can do so much different things. You can make API calls uh, sure. as part of the deployment cycle. You can you know, transform the CloudFormation template. With Sam, it does a lot of things uh, right out of the box. But the problem I have is, is with Sam is that when you don't agree with the decisions that Sam has taken, it's really hard for you to, um, to do anything about that. One time I was working with a client and we were using Sam. And uh, that's when Sam just introduced the IEM, the uh, IEM uh, authentication for API Gateway, mm-hmm. but it was also changing the how the IEM permission was passed through. Okay. So as a caller, I need to have the permission to invoke the function as well as the endpoint, which of course didn't make sense, breaks abstractions and all of that. Um, but there's no way for me to get out of that. So the only way I found was to actually wrote a CloudFormation macro, yeah. <laughs> deploy <laughs> that, and then change the template that uh, Sam generates just to fix that one tiny little thing. Right. And yeah. this is where having that flexibility that server framework gives you good default, like everybody else is trying to do as well, but at the same time, give you a nice way out. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, I guess that's uh, when it comes to frameworks, uh, there's also this new uh, CDK and Pudumi, which yep. is a whole different paradigm where uh, this lets you program with your favorite programming language. Uh, I have to say, I'm not a fan of this <laughs> approach. Uh, I think uh, I. I, I get the temptation that, uh, oh, I, I like writing stuff in, in C Sharp, I like writing stuff in JavaScript, mm-hmm. and now I can use my favorite language to do everything. But your preference to with the language that you, that you want to write, uh, I don't know. I don't think that should be a very high in the list of criteria for choosing a good deployment framework. Yeah. Uh, things like uh, the fact that you can write the same, you can get the same infrastructure but written in different ways, I think that is quite a dangerous thing. You can end up with arbitrarily complex things that would have been a lot simpler if everyone just you know, writes some kind of, some, something right. in the yeah. JSON or YAML. 
Um, that said, I do wish there's better tools for YAML. Uh, I see so many people struggle with just basic uh, indentation problems happens yes. all the time. Yes. <laughs> Um, no, for me, I came from uh, F Sharp and uh, did, uh, done some Python as well. Uh, no, white space matters. I mm -hmm. kind of learned that, yeah. but most people haven't. <laughs> so, you know, you haven't been trained to look out for those kind of problems, and uh, we do need better tooling support for YAML. That said, yeah. I still think YAML is, a, is, 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 or something like that is, is a better way to define your, 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 your resource uh, graph compared to writing code uh, to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I remember before there's all these frameworks, I was writing batch scripts to <laughs> provision everything. And now you're kind of just substituting batch with uh, you know, C sharp yes. or a, a prettier looking language. And I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the right approach. Yeah, no, and I actually agree with you on the on the CDK stuff. And I, and I know some people are huge fans of it and, and they like the idea that you can you know build these constructs and then you can build higher level constructs that wrap a bunch of things together. And, and, and it is kind of cool that you can encapsulate some of that stuff, but I do feel like there is that black box um, issue there. And, and, and maybe uh, was it Winston Churchill who said that uh, you know democracy is the worst form of government except for every other form of government or something <laughs> like that? I would probably say YAML is the worst form of configuration <laughs> language except for every other form of um, or every other configuration language. Um, all right, so the the uh, serverless framework um, they just came out with the serverless framework Pro, and I know you you've kind of experimented a little bit with that. But what are, what are your thoughts on um, on that now that they've added things like monitoring and CI/CD and uh, and some of that other stuff? I think it's a, it's, it's, a, um, it's a nice tool for someone who's new to serverless and just want to have something that they can use. But certainly from the monitoring perspective, uh, I don't think the service pro holds up compared to other more specialized uh, uh, solutions that offers monitor, uh, well, monitoring and, uh, and tracing that you can tell are, are done by people who, are, who has been in this field for a very long time mm -hmm. and understand this problem space. Uh, what I find with um, the serverless pro offering is that it gives you a lot of basics, mm -hmm. uh, but this doesn't do much more beyond what you get with CloudWatch. So as someone who's got a lot of experience with AWS and have used CloudWatch for many, many years, uh, I don't see a lot of value add for me to invest into uh, serverless pro. But at the same time, if you're new to AWS and new to serverless, having something that comes out of the box with the tool that you already use for yeah. deployment, I can definitely understand the temptation there. Uh, for for a lot of applica you know, applications I've I've done where you know, it's fairly well, it gets complicated quickly. You got so many different functions, a lot of event you know, triggers, a lot of events flying everywhere, and, and I'm really interested in the sort of the, the tracing side of things, mm -hmm. and that's where I think a lot of the, a lot of tools that we have today. It's not quite there yet. Uh, we have everything seems, seems to struggle with uh, tracing event bridge at the moment. Yeah, uh, and uh, and uh, also X-ray, for example, doesn't trace through SQS properly. Doesn't trace through Kinesis at all. And so we we get all these uh, sort of fragments of our of our transaction. But you can see that this space has been evolving really really quickly. If you look at the work that Lumigo has done, Epsicon has done, mm -hmm. and Thundra has done, everyone has gone. You no. Know, has gone through a lot of improvement over the last 12 months at least. And sure. I do see this space getting more mature and more of the, I guess, traditional big monitoring companies get into this space as well. And also a shout out to Honeycomb as well. I, mm -hmm. I think they also do a very good job in, uh, with their product. Uh, it's quite a big mind shift for people who's not used to doing event-based uh, monitoring. Yeah. But once, once you have that, it's really powerful. 
Um, Splunk has been there for a long time, but they kind of priced everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. And I and listen, I think that um, uh, I think you're right about the the monitoring um, the monitoring component of Serverless Pro. I mean, it is um, it is good. I mean, I I played around with it, and it, it does tell you about your invocations, things like that. But this idea of really understanding the tracing and and, yeah. and some of that deeper stuff is is um, uh, you know is a little bit um, is a little bit uh, more advanced. But um, I will say. The serverless framework has been great at developer tooling. I mean, that's one yep. thing that they've done really well. And, and I, I think the greatest feature of serverless pro, at least for me, um, is the new CI CD deployment stuff that they've released. They've got, you know, sort of similar to what seed.run did mm-hmm. with, um, being able to use the mono repo, right? So depending on, I mean, if, it's very hard to have multiple repos when you're um, building serverless apps, especially if your services are relatively small. Um, so sometimes that mono repo makes sense, um, and being able to just deploy changes from individual directories, I think, is a, a pretty interesting thing. But um, but anyways, all right. So what about your thoughts on this? Because I mean, this is another thing we hear all the time, and uh, it kind of drives me nuts is when we hear the term multi-cloud, right? And mm-hmm. that people are, you know, trying to. You actually mentioned it earlier, where you sort of hedging your bets to say, how easy is it for me to move um, from from AWS to to some other provider? Is that something that we actually care about? Um, so, do you see using a framework like SAM as potentially locking you in even more to AWS, or do you think that's sort of a a pointless argument? Um, I think it's uh, more of a pointless argument. Uh, even the tools that do support multi-cloud, uh, um, they have different syntax in the same way that the Terraform have got different syntax for different cloud providers, but give you consistent tooling experience when you use it with different cloud providers. Mm-hmm. But you still have to learn a different syntax. You have to learn the, the cloud itself, uh, what resources is you know, available in AWS versus uh, what resources is available in GCP or Azure, uh, or Azure uh, in Azure. And the server framework, it does support multiple cloud, but at the same time, I think you know, that it's not, it's not as valuable as people probably make it out to be, mm-hmm. because again, uh, how you work with different clouds is completely different syntax uh, and um, different resource type, and it gives you consistent tooling experience in terms of using SLS deploy yeah. <laughs> as something happens, but it doesn't remove the fact that that's nowhere you're gonna struggle with <laughs> when you wanna go from one cloud to another. Right. Uh, there's been so many different blog posts on this. I've written a few myself as well. And I think this uh, whole multi-cloud uh, thing is, um, is, is an argument about, for example, when I buy an iPhone, uh, I, you know, I take out insurance, yep. but how much do I pay for the insurance versus the cost of the phone itself, mm-hmm. right? If the phone, if the, the insurance itself is gonna cost way more than just getting a new phone, then why on earth would I you know, do that? But at the same time, you look at some of the art, this uh, 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 vendor lock-in arguments. Uh, well, when you decide, firstly, it's not lock-in. You can still move things. It yeah. just there's a cost to moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's you know, that coupling. So there's a cost of uh, there's a cost of moving. You either deal with that when that scenario comes up, or you try to do a lot of work upfront. So essentially, investing all the work that you will have to do later to this point when you don't even know what's going to happen in the future. And the worst thing is you end up with a lot of complexity that you have to carry all the way. And everything becomes more difficult, everything becomes slower, you becomes, you know, your developers have to work so much harder to do everything as opposed to just make a decision, go with it, and know in the back of your head that if we need to move ever, this is other things that we need to think about and we need to do. And uh, I think uh, Nick from Service Inc. actually wrote a really good post about the fact that 
uh, moving compute is always easy. It's the data. Correct. Data is the incentivized to yeah. stay with it and accumulate as much as possible. So it doesn't matter how easy it is to move your container uh, from you know, your APIs uh, in, from one container to another in different cloud. Well, we're going to do the data because uh, there's no exact replica of DynamoDB. <laughs> there's no exact replica of the high replication data store. Um, so I think it's I think I think it's 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 foolish to 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 do to try to to spend so much effort upfront to, to prevent something that is probably unlikely to happen, um, and you know, how much insurance I, I how much I spend on insurance mm -hmm. should be proportional to the risk of my phone getting stolen, lost, and also to the the cost of the phone itself as well. And I think the same argument applies here, where a lot of this strategy is just insurance against. The stolen phone. Yeah. And I think I need to start um, hooking my guests up to like a blood pressure monitor when I ask them the question <laughs> about lock-in because it is actually, it's very funny. I, I think people now, um, and I think I'm the same way when somebody asked me about this, um, and, then, and, and, and I think it maybe do it just to get a rise out of people, but it's like people get angry now about like trying to defend this vendor lock-in thing because I think you're absolutely right. And the biggest concern that I have where people play this vendor lock-in argument, like you're locked into everything. You're locked yep. into your iPhone. You're locked into um, you know, Microsoft Word or whatever, if that's what you choose to no do. Node.js, Express no, yes. so any framework, anything you use. Right, you're locked into these things. And um, I look at it and I say, if people are using that as an argument to use those sort of, um, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the tools or the picking the the technology that's the lowest common denominator, right? Then they're not choosing the best tool for the job, mm -hmm. and I think that is something that significantly impacts the ability for people to adopt serverless because they say, well, if I write a lambda function, I can't just easily move that to Azure. I can't easily move that to GCP. Um, you know, I need to work with all of those constraints. But honestly, I think if anything, you're just adding more work for yourself. Yeah. Um, and you're right, you're insuring yourself against something that is very unlikely to happen. And in the off chance that it does happen, um, I, I still think you're going to go through a massive exercise um, yeah. in order to migrate something, no matter how low a denominator, how, yeah. how low the denominator was that you chose. We went through all that, all that with ORMs. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a few years oh. where that's like ORM every single month. I go on uh, the record, I hate ORMs. Yeah, I, I hate because, them. Uh, when it does have to, when you do have to re, you know, move to a database, it turns out ORM doesn't really help you. <laughs> it doesn't. It's just another thing you're going to deal with as part right. of the migration process. Something new to learn, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, it gets you, it gets in, the, it gets in your way all the, you know, from the start in terms of the complexity uh, at the start. But also, when you want to do anything, you got to have to understand what happens under the hood, but then also how to do it with the ORM. Exactly. It's, it's crazy. And the um, optimization isn't there. You don't get the optimizations no, with an ORM, no. and that's the biggest thing that, that drives me nuts about them is that you you write a, a query, and then you have some you know some ORM or whatever that has to you know run three separate queries in order to merge the data back in the application layer because that's how it was built, where you could have just written a native query and done a join or something like that, yeah. and it would have been a thousand times more efficient. Um, but... Uh, but anyways, yeah. So, um, so you mentioned uh, Terraform as well when you were uh, when you were talking. So, um, what are your thoughts on Terraform for for serverless deployments? Uh, it's very laborious <laughs> and painful. <laughs> and uh, I remember when at one of my previous jobs, uh, I uh, I managed to convince the the uh, well the teams to use the serverless framework, and uh, all I had to do was show them a very simple API gateway uh, endpoint with a Lambda function. Yeah. And it was three lines of code in the server framework. And uh, it was about 150 lines of Terraform script. <laughs> and, uh, and 
and you can see the teams that are using the server framework they just go in there get it done uh move, you know get a feature shipped and test it and all that and uh, other teams will be spending the next two weeks just writing terraform script yeah and I had, I had engineers coming up to me and said and to describe their job as uh, well we spend about 60 percent of our time just writing terraform and when you talk about serverless being now, don't do undifferentiated heavy lifting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something's not quite right here. Right. We spend most of the time just writing infrastructure. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, then, and that's the thing, too, about with, with Terraform. I mean, Terraform is a very good product, and there's all kinds of oh, yeah, Terraform, absolutely. Uh, Terraform, the Enterprise Edition, has uh, you know, a lot of great things like safeguards and, and some of those other things. And, um, and I think it is a very good tool for, um, you know, for, for cloud management. Um, but at the same time, I think you're right, not very productive for the serverless no. developer. If, I mean, if I'm provisioning VPCs and networking and things like that, uh, I'm very happy to use Terraform. It's a very good tool for that. Uh, but when I just want to write a few Lambda functions and hook up a few endpoints and you know, check or, uh, or have some event source like uh, SNS, SQS, and so on, I really don't need Terraform. And what I need is something that can give me good defaults and allow me to do what I need to do and get out and move on to the next thing rather than having to get bogged down with the detail, the, the specifics, um, that's, yeah, that's just not productive. That's not useful. That's, that's just undifferentiated heavy lifting. You are <laughs> preaching to the choir. Um, so, all right, so let's move on to, uh, where is this going, right? I mean, so serverless in general. I mean, this is one of those things where I think you and I would agree that, and I think you mentioned it earlier, um, it's like we're making it more complicated, right? We're adding new features. It, it, the learning curve keeps getting steeper and steeper. Um, you know, there are still some use cases that are not necessarily perfect for it. AWS is making advancements in some of those things, reducing VPC cold starts, adding mm -hmm. things like RDS proxy and provision concurrency and those sort of things. But are, are there are there other things that are holding serverless back? Like, does there need to be some other breakthrough before it goes mainstream? Um, I don't know about the uh, major breakthrough, uh, but I definitely think uh, more education and more guidance, not just in terms of uh, what these features do, but also when to use them and how to choose between different event triggers. Mm -hmm. And that's a question I get all the time. How do I decide when to use API Gateway versus uh, ALB? How do I choose between SNS, SQS, Kinesis, DynamDB Streams, EventBridge, IoT Core? That's just six. <laughs> application integration services <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, there's just no guidance around any of that stuff. And it's, it's really difficult for at least someone new coming into this space to understand all the ins and outs of you know, what are the trade-offs uh, between SNS and SQS and Kinesis and so on. Um, so having more education around that, having more, sort of more official guidance uh, from AWS around that, that would be really useful. Um, in terms of technology-wise, I think I like the, the, the trajectory that uh, AWS has been on. No sort of no flashy new things, but mm -hmm. rather uh, continuously solving those day-to-day -day annoyances, the day-to-day -day problems that people run into. The whole cold start thing, um, again, often overplayed, often underplayed. Yes, is 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 never as good as some people say. It's never as bad as some other people say. Um, but having some solutions for people with, with real problems with co-stars because of various different reasons. Uh, I really like what they've done with provision concurrency, even if I think the implementation is still, I guess it's a version one. Mm -hmm. So hopefully some of the kinks that they currently have uh, would be, would be uh, solved. Um, other than that, I'd like to see them do more with the sort of multi-account uh, management side of things. 
account so a control tower is great uh, but again there's a lot of you know, clicking stuff in the console yeah. to get anything set up uh, and uh, it's it's also very easy to, to rack up a pretty big bill if you're not careful mm -hmm. it provisions a lot of and uh, and uh, net gateway for example uh, and uh, things like that and one of the companies I've been talking to recently as well a, a Dutch bank called uh, money you they actually built some re some really cool tool themselves to essentially give you uh, infrastructure as code uh, think of it as a cloud formation extension that yeah. allows you to capture your entire org uh, you, you know, oh, nice. so imagine I have a resource type that defines my org and then different accounts and then be able to configure CloudTrail set up for multi-account uh, configure security guard and things like that all within my uh, my sort of template which looks just like CloudFormation so some really amazing tool that those guys have built but having something like that uh, from AWS uh, would be would be you know would be pretty amazing as well because again we see more and more people getting to the point where they you know they have a very complex ecosystem of lots of different AWS accounts uh, managing them and setting up the right things the uh, the, the SCPs and things like mm -hmm. that uh, it's it's not easy and we certainly don't want people to be constantly going to the console and clicking things and that's another annoyance I constantly have with AWS documentations is uh, while well, they keep talking about infrastructure as code, yeah. but every single documentation just tells you, go to this console, click this button. That's how you do it in the console, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, exactly. So um, so what about, you know, sort of, I, I guess one of the things that I try to uh, tell people who ask me um, to get into the cloud or to, to start building stuff in serverless is sort of to do this you know, sort of a slow migration pattern, right? You can't just jump all in. You can't rewrite everything in serverless yep. and, and do that. Um, so often, though, that does require rewriting applications. So yep. do you see, you know, a potential path where making it easier to move those applications into Lambda or into Fargate, maybe? Like if there was an easier path to lift and shift, would that be something you think would make sense? I think that would make sense. Um I guess my, I guess I have to wait and, and see what kind of execution that comes from that because again, you're making a lot of assumptions about what people are using, what they're right. doing to be able to do, to be able to do that well. And of course, if you do that, you can. It's really easy to do them badly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I can think that would be great, but it really depends on the execution. Awesome. All right. So, any other missing pieces in serverless? So there's, there's, I mean, I, I think you and I agree we need some sort of Elasticsearch. Um, Utility, Absolutely. but uh, anything, anything else you can think of that's maybe missing? Uh, let's see, nothing off the top of my head, uh, but definitely, yeah, some kind of uh, Elasticsearch as a, well, serverless Elasticsearch, right. that'd be awesome. Awesome, okay. All right, so final question here, because um, now that I have you, and, and I think that um, you know, with everything that you write, with, uh, with the courses that you do, and you're doing a ton of um, uh, in-person um, uh, workshops and, and things like that, and, and all of your talks, everything you do is very, very good advice. And I think you know, you've been a serverless hero for quite some time. Um, and so just maybe we can capture, you know, if people are interested in moving to serverless, like what is your you know, one sentence or, I mean, it could be a little bit longer. Um, what, how would you suggest people make that first step into serverless? Uh, subscribe to this uh, newsletter that I heard is called something like uh, Off by None. Uh, it's a really good way to just get regular <laughs> uh, regular newsletters about all kinds of different content. I did not pay you to say that. <laughs> just want to make sure that's clear. <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely, I think if you're new, uh, that's one of the, I think one of the dangers of uh, of you know, having Lambda being deceptively simple mm. is that there's still a lot of things you have to learn. There's still a lot of things you have to understand to, you know, you can make 
really bad mistakes, and we keep reading on uh, on the on the web about the you know, horror stories. But a lot of that is because of the lack of research. And I think Joe Emerson said it really well that uh, well, if he spent uh, if he spent two weeks researching and two days doing work, you're probably going to end up better off than if you do two days of research and two weeks of work. Yes, totally agree. So you don't make all these mistakes. But in terms of uh, actual advice, I think reach out to people in the, in the community, people like you, me, Ben Cahill, others. Uh, we're, we're all very happy to help and do some research. And if you're stuck, just ask us questions. Uh, we all, we're all very keen to see a world where no, human productivity is not wasted on setting up servers and managing them, and we'd be very happy to help you, you know, so well help you get started the right way. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Yen, so much for uh, for joining me and and sharing all of this serverless knowledge with uh, everyone in the community, and obviously the the things that you continuously do to to help people learn and educate people on serverless. Um. So, if people want to find out more about you, how would they do that? Uh, they can go to theburningmonk.com or follow me on Twitter as uh, at theburningmonk. And you've got a bunch of courses um, and open source projects that you work on. Those are all available on theburningmonk.com. Yep, and- yep. Uh, it's got a bunch of courses you can find under the courses heading. There's also a bunch of in-person workshops I'm doing this year and also just lots and lots of blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, well, we will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Yen Trey for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 33. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.